Hello, Toby Haydock here. My victim this time, I don't know if his body's a temple, but his voice most certainly is. This is a good one because I'm in a dressing room at the West End of London with a leading actor uh, in, in, in a hit show, uh, and so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, who I am is Crawford Logan, and, uh, and Toby is absolutely right. He is sitting in my dressing room at the Fortune Theatre in London, and he's come to talk to me about Doctor Who because I was in a series of Doctor Who in about 1980 or 81 called Yeah. <laughs> and it's a good one from the point of view that when you hear Tom Baker saying Meg Lass, it's really absolutely right for Tom. <laughs> oh, I remember quite a lot about Meg Lass. And, and in fact, for Doctor Who fans out there who might listen to this, um, th- there is a little, possibly little known fact about uh, Meg Lass which concerns me. Um, uh, when you watch Meg Lass, you may not realise that it's a good pub quiz question uh, that as well as playing the peculiar character with the strange silver hair and the, and the silky trousers uh, I am also the voice of the cactus Ah, now you see, because I, I always assumed that was Christopher Owen because no, he played the earthling No, it is me and I sat in a little box with John Leeson and he did his, uh, his canine and I did my cactus. And, of course, the cactus was, um, you know, no special effects involved in 1980. It was every needle stuck on lovingly by hand. <laughs> so it took a long time and it didn't, it wasn't, didn't really endear itself to Tom particularly. He didn't really enjoy having uh, needles stuck all over him, taking a very long time. He didn't quite have the, the attention span for that. I remember Tom came in after lunch one day and we did about 15 minutes and he just said, oh, I've had enough of this, I'm going home. And he just disappeared, so nothing else we could do. So And uh, and he got very cross one night with the, um, the the guys down on the studio floor when we were recording because he will recall that there are, um, that there are all those strange jungle roots and things which are rather, yes, and <laughs> rather pneumatic and they didn't always work. So, so Tom got a little bit agitated because they didn't work, and he got very. He had a bit of a row with somebody just after which I had a short scene with him where I had to kind of pin him up against a a, a kind of a trellis, a metal trellis thing, and he was quite agitated. and And of course, he's a big guy, and and I just hoped he wasn't going to take it out on me, which he didn't. But there we go. Well, and, and talking of interesting characters, it was the only Doctor who directed by Terence Dudley. He wrote some others That's later right. on, yeah. but he was oh, he was quite a yeah he did, um, but he was uh, beyond his heyday actually as a BBC yes, producer. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, what do you remember of? Terence, who seems to divide people, actually, if I'm honest. I don't, suppose, I don't know how much I do remember of, of, of Terence. I first worked for Terence in Secret Army. And um, I guess the sort of acting thing about that is, is that at that time I'd done no telly at all, and, and since then I've done virtually none either. But, let that pass, um, there was always that thing like there is in every part of this business, is, is how you get into things, and... And people who say, how do you get into that? We can't do it. Or, you know, I do a lot of this, why don't you? And Terence was directing Secret Army, and I had a girlfriend at the time who worked in the office. And they needed a German speaker to be Gestapo. 
and and she knew that I spoke German, so she went to Terence and said, "My boyfriend speaks German." So he got me in, and I looked fair-haired and vaguely Aryan. <laughs> Aryan. <laughs> and and uh, so I got the job, and I guess that's how I got Doctor Who as well. Um, well, before we get back onto Doctor Who, then as we've we've brought it, uh, Secret Army, I I did about three years ago. I got the box set and I watched it through. I, I remember it, it existed. Good. That's very good. It's it's, it's damn good. Mm. It's a it's very great good stuff. show. Yeah, it's lovely stuff. And, and it holds up too. And it was great fun to do because the bit I did, we went to to Brussels and we filmed on location in the street with all the you know the stuff blacked out to make it look like the 1940s. And actually what was interesting about it was because I had a, a, an SS uniform on and I had a bunch of young Belgian conscripts who were my troop who had all had their hair cut to, 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 to be Nazis. Um, but what was interesting was that, that some people in the street who stood by and watched the filming going on got quite agitated by the presence of a, of a Gestapo uniform. And, and one or two people came up and sort of fingered the, the material and said, oh, yes, of course, the Germans had much better material than we had. But one guy got very agitated and was kind of dragged off by the police around the corner because they were a bit unhappy about, about seeing, sure, seeing sure. that on the street. But it was a lot of fun to do. I got to screech up in a kind of staff car, you know, and leap out and board this tram and arrest people, or nearly arrest people, and speak German. So that was it. And you should have said to them when they said the Germans had better materials, the Germans didn't work for the BBC. BBC. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so you, so you, we've covered the, you, you, so you got the part in Doctor Who. I guess, because of terrorists that you'd worked with him before. Yes. yes, I do remember the scenes with the dodecahedron, which were quite entertaining with all the. All the guys in pink were <laughs> all as camp as a row of tents. I mean, it was wonderful standing around with that bunch of bunch of extras in their kind of pink robes, standing around the dodecahedron. Well, and of course that's that, that's the BBC at the time, of yes, course, which yeah. is a way of making television that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yes. Which is you would rehearse. For, yeah. Oh, you yeah. Would rehearse, absolutely. You would meet everybody. Yeah. You would be a, a a team. Absolutely. Well, the first episode of of the East, of EastEnders let us move to that that I was in, and when I was only in four, I think, and they decided I wasn't much cop. But the first one of that, um, before the character had a name, uh, there was a 50-second scene in the square, and and I just went in and you just did it once and then shot it. And I remember very clearly that we did it once we shot it, and I put a word, I replaced a word with something that meant the same. So I, and they said, right, cut, that's fine, go on to that. I said, ah, can we, could we just do it once more? Because that word was, you know, wrong. And he said, well, we haven't got time to do the whole thing. We'll go from shot 133, you know, whatever. Um, and, and we did, and that was, but that was a 50-second scene. So, you know, you were going into a soap. You didn't know whether that might be your only episode or you might be there ten years later, but you were kind of stuck with, you know, you, you, you had to do it instantaneously. But you were stuck with what whatever voice came out for that character. If in, in principle, if it had gone on forever, it was unchanging. So I was a kind of Glasgow hard man, supposedly. And um, but to be perfect, to be honest with, I, I don't really enjoy filming, especially. I don't. I find the the um, just the, the hanging around and waiting while everything is, is going on around you, and then suddenly you do it, and, and it's all been done, and you, know, you, you have to turn it on straight away, and I don't always enjoy that, but it's, it can be quite fun. Well, there's a huge difference, of course, between that and we're in the Fortune Theatre because you're doing The Woman in Black, um, between doing that sort of acting, which is all this stuff going on around you, and then you have to deliver yeah. for the, for the three-second yeah. take or whatever, yeah. and what you're doing now, which is playing the same part 
for nine over months. And over and again, I think we've just done the 68th, no, or even 69th, I can't remember. I don't really count, but it's round about that area. So there's still something like, what, about 250 to go, I should say. Ah, how do you keep it fresh? Well, it's. I think it's easier. It's probably easier with a show like this, where the audience is always different. So that sometimes the audience can be very raucous, and um, which is fun in one way, and the the, the screaming and shouting is fun. Uh, other times the audience can be quite quiet. It was quite quiet this afternoon. They do react to the scary bits, but not as much. So you know, it's not like you're looking out at a lot of blank faces every night. It's all going to be different. Um, so that's that's part of it, and 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 both of them have their advantages because the screaming is is fun, and you know when it's going to come, so you can enjoy it. Um, but when you've got a slightly quieter audience, the performance is different because you can actually play it the way you want to play it, and and you can you know you can choose your timing, and then you can tell the story much more clearly because it's not being interrupted by lots of kids talking. And also, there's only two of us, so we can we can up to a point we can do what, what we like or we can throw things at each other um, unexpectedly so I, I think that's that's kind of useful but it's you know it's it's not so easy and, and I don't think you always know you're changing either and um, I remember when I was in the mousetrap uh, the director came back in in February after we'd been doing it about three months which is not bit longer than we've been doing this actually and and she, we did a rehearsal we did a run through and, and you realised the things that you were either doing too much of or had <laughs> thrown out of the window in the meantime but you didn't know you were doing it and I think that's a bit of a trick actually well, these these are two <coughs> institutions that you've done. They which, are. I'm which, afraid they are merely institutions. Well, no, let's not because let's not underestimate this. You know, I'm an actor that that, that there's not a lot of work about. No. Um, and to get a gig at the West End in a in a major production, playing the lead, that's that's not, that's not too shabby. Well, it's yeah, it's nice to be here. It's probably be a, you know my age, Toby. It's probably going to be about my last opportunity to be in in the West End, maybe. Or certainly cavorting around as much as I have to do in this one. And, of course, in The Mousetrap, you you played the role who, at the curtain call, has the job of saying, saying hello, please don't tell anybody who did it. That's right, uh, which... 416 <laughs> times. I don't think I can remember it anymore, but... Uh... <laughs> Would, would, would if you opened the mouse trap now, would it run? I suspect it wouldn't. And when you did Doctor Who, it had been on on a long time. It was a bit of a. I mean, it's always been yeah. uh, something of an institution. But were you were you aware that it was uh, that there was something different about doing Doctor Who than doing just doing a telly? You know? Oh well, I think because, I mean, you know, I'm I'm probably one of the, f- the few actors in Britain who wasn't in the bill. And I'm certainly one of the few Scottish actors who was not in Taggart, <laughs> although I interviewed for that two or three times. But, I mean, being in Doctor Who is a bit special, simply because people go bananas about it. And I have a very, very good friend in Scotland who's half my age, young John Keelty, who's a magnificent actor and a fantastic musician and songwriter, and completely potty about Doctor Who. And whenever we do gigs together, he always gets me... He always said, and this is my friend Crawford, and he was in Doctor Who in late night. I'm like, right, John, let's just do the song, shall we? Just forget this. Megloss is a is a funny story because it's a sort of it's a bit of a hybrid between what Doctor Who was and what Doctor Who was about to be. So you've got this sort of very serious, dense scientific plot, and then you've got Frederick Treves and mm-hmm. Bill Fraser as comedy pirates, <laughs> <laughs> which I love about it. Yes. 
Um, and they were mad, of course. I mean, they were, they were bonkers. And it was the first time I'd met the kind of the the the, um, the, the screen technology. The, the, you know, everybody being placed in very particular spots up against the screen, mm. and then they suddenly miraculously turn up in a model spacecraft. Um, so yeah, it, I suppose it was. And I, I said to somebody the other day uh, that I, I thought probably that Meglos wasn't, you know, one of the the real top of the range. Doctor Who series, and they said, "Well, no, but actually, we don't think it's you know, one of the absolute worst ones either." I do remember that um, that Mr. Fraser only the, the, he was reputed only to have taken the job if he was promised that he could kick Kane Hine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and you have a, a very fetching wig, of course. Oh. Yes, isn't it charming? Because every every scientist on um, on the planet Tigella is born with a certain sort of hair. <laughs> yes, well, my wife, who was my girlfriend at that time, um, came to one of the evenings filming, sat up in the box, and um, whether it turned her on or put her off, I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a very fetching wig, and it does appear in these photographs at Doctor Who occasions or people who come round to the stage door here with books. But it is slightly embarrassing, and I was. I was pushing 30 at the time, but I do look about 18, I think, in one or two of these. I can remember in that... Do you remember being out in, in the middle of that, you know, the, the, the kind of control room with the, all the knobs and buttons that I was supposed to be able to work? And you were in that great pool of light, and you could see the cameramen there. But, you know, you weren't getting any communication from anywhere. Stuff was, was happening up in the in the box, but, but you didn't really know what it was a lot of the time. And there's always that thing, isn't there, when you, you're standing in that pool of light and one of the cameramen suddenly guffaws with laughter and being actors and sensitive little flowers, they think, you know, you assume somebody's made some comment about you, which they almost certainly haven't. But it's that kind of remoteness of telly that I find... It's just not my thing, really. Well, we'll get on to that because I'm. I, ah, because right, I think you're gosh. particularly. <clears throat> I, I think there's a lot of interest in 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 radio and television and stage and that. But uh, but before we leave, Doctor Edward Underdown, yes, veteran actor, yes. And, and, yeah. and not terribly well when he. No, was I don't think he was. Lots. I think you can see it. Yeah, which is sad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Jacqueline, of course. Yeah, who who was the first yes. regular actor to play a guest character in Doctor Who. Yes, that's she'd right. William yeah, yeah. And she brought a touch of class and, and, and statuary to the whole proceeding, I think. When on recording evenings, and they often had parties of school children around the studios in the afternoon, and I remember, and then they got bunged out when it came up towards six or seven o'clock, whenever it was, and, and they always wanted to go and pat K9. That was the last thing they wanted to do, was go and pat K9, which is rather, rather sweet. Last year in Glasgow, I was in a show at the Tron, and two guys turned up with stuff to sign. One of them said he had Doctor Who costumes that he'd bought in an auction, and then the second one, one of them turned up again the next night with a book to sign, and it turned out that um, he... I don't know, down here, I think you do have... Um, well, you certainly have Tunnock's caramel wafers. Oh, yes. Uh, do you have Tunnock's tea cakes? Yes. Well, this yes, is yes. the man who, poured, for 29 years, has poured the mixture for Tunnock's <laughs> tea cakes. <laughs> and is a Doctor Who fanatic. Uh, but the thing about how they get there, I don't know, that, that's another thing, small thing about Meglos, that I, before Meglos came out, I was on tour in a, a play by Tom Stoppard called Dirty Linen. And we were in crew... And uh, these two little boys, aged about ten, armed with large 
reams of paper appeared at the stage door, um, and they seemed to have insider knowledge about Meglos because they knew all about it even before it had gone on screen. Okay. So they wanted to talk to me for their school magazine about being in Meglos. I love the way you do Meglos. You say well, Meglos like is Tom, Tom Baker. <laughs> <laughs> but you can hear, t- it's, it's, it's a great Tom word. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Um, so, okay, well, let's talk about because I think there are a number of different things that are interesting. I think you're well known in the business for your voice. It's a hard part of the industry to break, and you've you've prospered in, in the voiceover areas well, and radio. Radio, yeah, I don't know. Voiceovers in, in, in the 90s, I did an enormous number of voiceovers in Scotland. Um, and in fact, I had a very, <laughs> a very embarrassing occasion. I was at Radio Forth one day. And, and I went to the loo, and I happened to coincide with the commercial break, and all four commercials were me. And I thought, this is just a bit <laughs> overkill. But, I mean, you know, in the 90s, uh, there weren't so many people doing it, and there weren't people doing it, you know, there wasn't the sort of awareness of it, and actors didn't have little studios set up at home, which I still don't have. Um, and so, and, and there were one or two people who, who used to just call me in. I got, remember getting a phone call from a... A studio one day, and he said, "Oh, Crawford, I got a, got a gig for you." He said, "I've just had this guy on the phone. They said they wanted a really boring voice." So I said, "Right, we'll get Crawford in, <laughs> do that." And the other thing in Scotland in the nineties that I used to do a lot of um, was the kind of corporate stuff. You know, in the days when all the money was sloshing around, and all these companies would go up in a helicopter and do flybys in sky for their fancy video for the AGM, and then they wanted a a, a commentary which was either RP or kind of educated Scots, so that it was you know, but didn't go as far as as Sean Connery. Um, but so I had quite a hold, I think, on on those sort of things in those days, but not anymore because you know, there are millions of people doing it and. Millions of people doing it at home. Uh, but millions of people aren't Paul Temple on the radio. Ah, oh, Paul Temple. Ah, oh, well, there you go. Yes, well, it seems to... <laughs> it sells. I, the first series we did, I went into my local Waterstones not long after the CD came out, and it was it was their top-selling CD for the week. <laughs> um, and it, so it seems to prove quite popular and I'm going to plug here there's a new 10 parter coming out I guess it might be quite it might even be next month I think it's a whole 10 parter but very soon Toby the, 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 the audiences and they're very nice and, and people do enjoy it um, they're, they're going to tweak to the fact that they're actually all the same and the plots are all exactly the same and <laughs> each one is as improbable as the last one but people I don't know people seem to like it because it kind of takes them away from things, it's a bit of escapism and it's so completely improbable um, that it somehow makes it a lot of fun, you know, I mean we we, we, uh, we we find bodies all over the place but we never go to an inquest and we never get any blood or anything on our on our clothes, I mean I love the thing where you, I think it was in the, particularly in the first series there was a, an incident where we discovered a, a body in the um, in a cupboard and of course, it was just, Steve, stand back! You know, she mustn't go anywhere near it. So we, and then so that was the end of the scene with the cupboard. And there's a little music bridge, and the next scene is is breakfast, uh, the next morning in this posh hotel, which starts off with Paul saying, "Pass the marmalade, darling." You know, <laughs> cuts straight from one. That's brilliant. 
But isn't it great as an actor though to have it because because you know when people you say to people I'm an actor and they go what have you done and if yeah. you go well, uh, I I played Hedda Gabler at uh, uh, to the Theatre Royal in Bath or if they go yeah. there but if you go I'm Paul Temple I mean that's a that's a thing it isn't is, it but they have to be you have to be Radio Four listener which you know, lots of people aren't but you know if you say you've been in I don't know what's on telly they say oh God you know, you know well, why is, yes, well, but, I mean... So, you've, you've, but that's you've, just the model, you know, video killed the radio star, didn't it? But you've, you've alluded to <clears> this about telly, and, you, and you've said that it's not something you necessarily particularly enjoy. Did, I mean, so did you stop chasing it? Because you haven't, interesting, you haven't done an awful lot of telly. Very, very little. I mean, the things I've done are, are, are actually things which are quite, let us not use the dreaded word iconic, but you know what I mean. Like, you know, it's, it's Doctor Who, um, Secret Army... EastEnders and The Chief on Anglia. Right. So, you know, they're all those kind of things that people recognise. So, I don't know. I mean, shall, shall I put in a bad word about my agent here? I don't know. Um, <laughs> do I get put up for things? I don't always know. When I do, I tend not to get them. Um, and nearly, <laughs> when, when I was just about 19, no, I won't say the year, but when I was just starting out, I was down to the last two for the Mayor of Casterbridge with, um, with Alan Bates. For the oh, BBC, okay. yeah, but I didn't get that either. So, so uh, you know, I, I don't go for very many. When I do, I don't tend to get them. And um, I, I think, you know, in, many, in many ways, that certainly that when I did a lot of voice stuff in the nineties, it suited me very well because we had young children and my wife was working, so it was a very good job from that point of view. And I think, you know, if you're lucky enough in this business to to have the right job at the right time if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in the mousetrap when my, when my daughter was very small, so that was good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was in, on the BBC rep for 18 months just after I was married, so that was good as well, so I was at, at home and um, not rushing about on tour. So there's jobs for the right time, and I've been quite lucky in that respect, I think. Well, and indeed, yes, because my mum would be prouder of you than she is of me because you've been in The Archers. Ah, The Archers, <laughs> twice. Twice, <laughs> indeed. The first one, um, uh, Captain, uh, Captain Fraser came about in about 1982 or three, and uh, Captain Fraser was a rather shadowy individual, possibly a former member of the SAS, and he lived kind of fairly rough in a, um, an old cottage, and he had a thing with Caroline Bone, but then so does everybody. And um, <laughs> the reason that what happened was they, they got me up to do Captain Fraser, I can't now remember why, but it was when I was on the BBC Rep, and they had said at the outset, you know, it was just two or three episodes. And then it got more and more. But then the BBC at the rep said, hang on, we don't like him going up to Birmingham so often, so you've got to remove him. So I was removed after about six months, I think. And then I was cast, what, four or five years later as Matthew Thurigood. Mm. Um, and then I was got rid of, but we won't go into that. Um, although by that time we'd moved to Scotland, so it made it a bit... Iffy. Um, but my theory was that, that Captain Fraser had, uh, had gone off to a shady South American republic. And, of course, uh, let's say also that Thorogood had, had a thing with Caroline Bone as well. So Captain Fraser went to a shady South American republic, did a bogus degree in medicine, and then reappeared <laughs> in Ambridge as Matthew Thorogood. That's just my theory. <laughs> well, that just goes to show what a loose woman she was if she yeah, didn't notice she, she was sleeping with the same person twice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, do you have any... Uh, Ambitions as an actor left to fulfil? Oh, have I have I fulfilled any so far? Well, I suppose you know you get to the age that I got to last week, 
Um, and you and you're just lucky to be there and and doing it and not really thinking about stopping doing it and uh, it's it's good to be going on on stage still I mean I'll probably be back in Scotland when I finish this unless who knows we don't know you know we all do that don't we we all do things and we think oh we're in this for a while we don't know who's going to come and see it but basically in the end we are really the organ grinder's monkey sadly actors are the organ you know you, you go where you're told you stand where you're told to stand you learn the lines and you're all you're like the you're like the the squad is in the in the trenches you know you, you carry the can basically the um the officers can sit on their horses behind the scenes um but basically you carry the can um and uh, you know I, I i don't know how long paul temple will go on i think there's at least one more to do, I think. There's one that's been discovered in Germany, which needs to be translated back into English. It's funny, they found one of them in Sweden, in the sort of radio archives at Swedish. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So they've, been, they've had to dig them out. You are, you are uh, performing uh, at, at the West End, so why don't we plug the show? Tell us why we should come and see The, the Woman in Black. Because it's scary and it's fun and it's quite old-fashioned and a bit dusty and you know, it's not glitzy and it's not Les Mis and it's not uh, you know, big musicals and all the rest of it. There's only two people in it, although I play a lot of people in it, which is another cause of consternation and apparently it has been said that uh, you know, where are all these other actors off tonight? Because there's one guy up there playing five characters, <laughs> like you know. So. But it's cheap. That's the reason, and it's a brilliant piece of theatre because it is extremely theatrical, and that is another good reason that you should see it. And it's a bit, it, you know, to introduce people to theatricality. It's a very, uh, it's a very good uh, vehicle for that, and it's, it's kind of deceptively simple, but it, it, uh, you know, it's not necessarily that simple to do. Um, but it, 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 the, the premise of it is quite simple. Uh, a lot of it relies on sound effects, uh, but a, the majority of it, the great part of it, relies on the imagination of the audience, which is what makes it good theatre. And I have a line in it, which is, imagine, if you would, this stage, an island, this isle, a causeway, running like a ribbon from the salt marsh through the sea, the only link the gaunt grey house and land so you are invited to use your imagination and if you don't buy into that you will not enjoy it um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a good theatrical evening it is only two hours including the interval I had a director at drama school who, Hugh Morrison years ago who refused to said I refuse to direct anything that lasts longer than two hours I think it's unreasonable to expect people to sit longer <laughs> than two hours so there you go this is exactly two hours it starts at eight finishes at ten and there's, only, and there's just the two of us and the ghost. Two of us and a ghost. The listeners haven't paid for this. You haven't paid listeners. Um, no, what's, no, you, no. What's, your, what's your charity of choice? Do we, do we chari- ask them to donate my, to? my charity of choice is called Health Prom. H- Health Prom. So H-E-A-L-T-H-P-R-O-M. Um, and the particular um, project, uh, among several that is run by Health Prom, is their project for reducing maternal mortality in Afghanistan. That's it. Excellent. And the uh, so the final question is: Doctor is fifty this year. Um, do you have a message to the Doctor Who fans <laughs> that are listening? God. It could be as pejorative as you like. <laughs> I have a message for Doctor Who fans. Um, well, I suppose one message for Doctor Who fans might be that that uh, I I think maybe given the um, 
the sort of uh, breadth of interest and all the extraordinary characters that even someone like me has met who seems to follow around Doctor Who, that I think they should have a campaign where it is uh, punter's choice as to who is the next Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I think the punters should do an exam first, though, otherwise it'll be Paul Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what was this, this little side? I, one of the books I signed on Saturday was, uh, I don't know what, it was a big tome, and it had lots of kind of newspaper articles and things in it, and it was because Megloss was towards the end of Tom, and there was a big article in from some newspaper which said... Um, you know, Tom Baker is leaving soon. The speculation is that the next Doctor Who will be a woman. Yes, and that's the position we're in now. Yes, so, yeah. so at them as we speak, we do not know who the no. new Doctor Who is. Yeah, of course not. Uh, well, maybe you'll know when by the time that this is released online. Oh, we didn't talk about your grandson. No, we didn't. Oh, there he is. Do you want to talk about your grandson? <laughs> I'm always talking about my grandson. Tell me about your grandson before we finish. All right, anyway. Well, this is him. He's on this thing, which you can't see, dear listener. Um, but this is this is called the Sebi Cube. It's been copyrighted. It's called the Sebi Cube because his name is Sebastian. And his name is Sebastian, which you can also say Spanish, Sebastian, because his daddy is Colombian. Mm-hmm. And his mummy is my lovely daughter, who is there. And as well as having his daddy from South America, they he was born in Kuwait. So we were because they live in Kuwait, and he is now about two and a half months old. Thereabouts, born in March, and um, I, I'm I'm kind of missing him, so I have to have this cube of photographs, Aww. which, as I say, is called the Sebi Cube, and and it is here in my dressing room, so I can look at him from different angles and have a different photograph on my dressing table every night. So he is my first grandchild, and he's when I was there, I met him an hour after he was born, and he's gorgeous. He's fab. But also, I have to say, I know as a young, as as somebody who was a young boy once, that uh, if if you grow up and your granddad was in Doctor Who, I think that's probably pretty good. You think that's it? Yeah. Well, the other thing he's going to get—it's a bit Stalinist in here. If you look behind you, they give you this very fine picture on the first night of management. But he will—it will have to go in my will because I think he has got to have it because I sent this out to to the director and my co star in the show when he was born in Kuwait to prove that I was not only looking after a newborn but I was learning the learning lines, the lines as well it's, it's, it's a <laughs> tiny tiny wee baby yeah. with the woman in black that's script it. on your lap that's as right. well that's it. <laughs> oh well brilliant well, so that's him, that's your man well long after we're gone Sebi if you're listening yes. this, was, this was your granddad yes. and, uh, and an obscure actor and comedian talking about <laughs> Doctor Who I hope it's been interesting for you <laughs> It's good night from him. It's good night from him. Brilliant. So it just remains for me to say, Crawford Logan, thank you very much. And Toby Hallett, this is your life. (laughs) Thank you very much much. indeed. Thank you. Well, I hope that was okay for you. That was brilliant. Very good at it. Oh, well, that's kind. Very seriously good at it. That's kind. Thank you. My thanks to Crawford. His charity is Healthprom, which is at healthprom.org. Healthprom.org. Donate if you can. Next up, an actor who took some tracking down, and I'm glad I did, because the stories he tells outside of his stint on Doctor Who are 
quite extraordinary, a very interesting man in the next Who's Round. Here's a taster, and until the next time, goodbye. They used to call me the king of Saint-Tropez in those days because anything, if some somebody come in on a boat and they say, look, we'd like to give a dinner party for about 90 people, and we, we know 10. Can you, they knew the people that I would bring, I could bring 50 people, would be okay. So you were the I used fixer, the social Oh, oh yes, like that, yes, yes it was. It was exactly like that. In fact, they said that in my trial in the well in the high courts here for three years ago you are a fit you were the fixer of the south of france for anything coming soon from big finish productions if you've become accustomed to hector being hacked i won't want him to become hex again there must be some way of getting him back. We just have to find it, that's all. Revenge of the Swarm. Leave me alone. Get out of my head. What are you? Hey, what are you doing? Locking Hector in his room. What? He's not capable of flying the TARDIS, so something made him program the coordinates. We're a scientific research team. We're instructed to find a living carrier of the plague virus. And I've just given you what you wanted. I am the greatest being the universe has ever known. The sentient virus. We will all die together, and you will cease ever to have existed. You should have recognized the symptoms. Oh, I should never have stepped out of the TARDIS. Contact has been made. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.